Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Sustainable-ish podcast. We are up to episode 171. Thank you so much for being here. I really do appreciate it. And I kind of hope that you enjoy it a little bit too. (laughs) Now, it's a cliche to say it, but I can't believe it's November already. If your thoughts are starting to turn to Christmas already and you're wanting to see if you can do things a little bit differently this year in terms of less waste and less stuff, then the crap-free Christmas course is now live. We're diving into the resources, we're making lists that can be checked twice and we would love to see you in there. You can join anytime. It is just £10 for a whole host of resources, a downloadable crap-free Christmas workbook and access to the private Facebook group. And I'm also running a free crap-free Christmas webinar, which is happening on the 15th of November. Do come and join me. I would love to see you there. I will pop the links for both of those things into the show notes, so do check them out. Right then, today's episode. Podcast-wise, it was only seven episodes ago, but time-wise, almost a year has passed since I chatted to Annie Pickering from Climate Emergency UK about their council climate scorecards. In that chat, which I will link to in the show notes in case you either haven't listened for any particular reason or you can't remember, we talked about why climate action from local authorities is important. The operational carbon footprint of most local authorities isn't huge, but their sphere of influence over their local area is pretty big. And in fact, up to around a third of the UK's emissions are under the influence of local authorities. So it is potentially a really big deal what your local authority are doing or not doing when it comes to climate action. For most of us, we probably only interact with our local authority when we begrudgingly pay our council tax or when we want to complain about bins or potholes. But there is a whole lot more we can do to encourage and support our councils in taking climate action. When I spoke to Annie last year, we discussed the PLAN scorecards, which were published in 2022 and looked at local authorities' climate action plans, the things they were planning to do. We also started to talk about the plans more plans that Climate Emergency UK had to produce a whole new set of scorecards for actions. And this is what we're talking about today. We dive into how the new scorecards were produced, how the results differ for councils from their plans to their actions, and the role that the scorecards can play in driving further action from local authorities and how we can use them to help us engage with our local councils. There's also a shout out for the Climate Emergency Crowdfunder, which is live at the moment, raising funds to help them get the scorecards out there being used in the most effective way possible and supporting the team at Climate Emergency to work with campaigners, councils and other organisations to really use the scorecards as an effective campaign tool to push for change. And also, importantly, to track the progress of local authorities over time by publishing future editions of the scorecards. Now, Aviva are providing match funding for the campaign until the 22nd of November, which means that any donation you make until then will be matched by Aviva. And I know that times are pretty tough right now and the expense of Christmas is looming, but if you do have any spare pennies, this really is a great climate cause to donate to. And as Annie says in the episode, if you can't donate, please do share the scorecards, the crowdfunder and this episode with friends, family and colleagues to help get the word out there. 
I will pop the link to the crowdfunder in the show notes, along with that link to the previous episode with Annie and an awful lot of other useful links as well. I will be back with the good news section after this main chunk. (laughs) Is that the phrase we want to use? Chunk Uh, of the podcast. But for now, enjoy. Hi, Annie. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello. It's great to be here again. And it's really funny because I just was just looking back to see what episode it was that we recorded last time and it was 164. Um, so it's not many episodes ago, but in length of time, it's quite a long time ago because yours was the last episode before I had to just an abrupt unplanned stop and then didn't publish anything for um, uh, for nine or 10 months. So hopefully that won't be the case again. You are not the omen of... <laughs> No, but we've a lot also been doing a lot as well. Yeah, we've been yeah. busy in the last 10 months or whatever. So last time you came on and you were talking about, um, well, yeah, introduce yourself before we dive into that. Introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. So I'm Annie. I'm one of the co-directors at Climate Emergency UK, um, which is the organisation behind the Council Climate Scorecards. And I, we were on last time discussing the plan scorecards, uh, which was where we measured the written climate action plans of every UK council and published those results back in 2022. Um, But we have now created a whole new methodology, an entirely different set of questions, scoring councils on the actual completed action. Um, And that took 10 months to compile and we published the action scorecard results last week. Wow. And that has been a huge body of research and um, I don't know if you want, just want to talk a little bit about how you did that and sort of getting volunteers on board and all that sort of thing, because I, I sort of joined up to do that. And it was such an eye opening process to start to understand a little bit better about how local authorities function and things. But do you want to talk a little bit about how you gathered all the information that you have? Yeah. And I think you've said something really important there that like we couldn't have done this without our volunteers. So for the action scorecards, we had over 200 volunteers that got involved in marking 388 councils across seven sections. Um, so thanks, Jen, and everyone else. Um, <laughs> it really like made it possible. Um, so both scorecards follow the same marking process, but I'll talk about the action scorecards one because that's the new exciting one where like the real information is. So there's up to 91 questions for um, every council and they vary slightly depending on council's powers. So, for example, um, county councils don't write the local plan and have very limited control in terms of planning. So that section for planning for county councils is two questions. Whereas for district councils, it's 10 or so. It's a lot more. Um, So we do a three stage marking process, um, firstly, which involves all the volunteers um, looking at publicly available information from council websites or related sources. Um, And we collect all of that through our data marking system. The second stage is when the councils get to review their first mark. So maybe a volunteer has misunderstood a document or like a link was broken and they couldn't find it. Um, So the councils get a copy of the methodology criteria and the first mark and can respond whether like we're correct or not correct. And this year we had 74% of councils responding to the right of reply. And this is a voluntary exercise from councils um, and, you know, it does take a few hours. And that is like, yeah, more than double the response rate we got from councils last year. Which I was going to say, really... how does that compare? And, and so more than double? Yeah, more than double 
um, compared to when we did the plan scorecards. So yeah, three quarters of UK councils have responded in the right of reply. Which and I think do you really... think that that's because they've realised that people are looking at these scorecards and that it's important and that they're really useful for them and for other people? Do you, just because people are, I guess, when you first did it, they were like, you want us to do what? Like you're doing what? And now they're like, oh, it's you guys again. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, the credibility and legitimacy we have is from the sector using our work. Um, and because it is not opt-in, like we score all councils no matter what, I think they've realised that it makes sense for them to engage with the process, even if they don't like their final score, um, because that's their best chance of improving the score. But also what we often hear from councils uh, is that they say, yeah, I mean, you are kind of right that we're not doing these things, but we like don't really want you to tell people that. <laughs> Um, and like that's what we're doing. We're holding councils to account. Um, and in the many ways, what we're showing, some of it is new information because um, we did use freedom information requests this year. But a lot of this information is already available on council websites, but it's just like hard to understand, unclear what that means, and hard to know whether, you know, your council says they've done 10% of X. Is 10% good? Or mm. are all other councils doing like 50% electric? car usage yeah. kind of trying to understand how that compares across the across the and I guess UK. um this brings me to a question that I should have asked right at the very beginning which is um you know for anyone who hasn't listened to that that episode we did um that original episode we did like why have you guys decided to focus on local authorities and councils and how, why did you decide to create this league table like why does it yeah, what, what's the point? <laughs> yes, very good question. Um, and the reason we've done it is because we're in a climate emergency and we all need to be doing everything we can um, to reduce our carbon impact and protect the kind of ecological uh, environment we live in. And councils have a real role to play. So the stats vary, um, but the one we use is from the Sixth Carbon Budget Report that says carbon emissions, um, up to 30% of carbon emissions are within the scope and influence of local authorities. So if that is true, and we kind of, yeah, I can explain why we think it is true. The things that councils can do to impact on our carbon emissions um, and biodiversity locally can have a much bigger impact than what individuals can do. And often councils move faster than at a national level. So like the example I like to talk about is um, recycling you know you recycle whatever your council tell you you can whether there's food waste recycling available curbside or like plastic or not plastic or different plastics but it's your council that determine what is available to do so if you live somewhere that does have curbside food waste recycling you know your food waste is much lower because that system is provided for you but if your council doesn't provide it then that isn't there for you um so we're kind of looking at what can councils do within their power to have that real like structural impact um, to reduce carbon emissions across the UK. Mm. And as we'll talk about the results, it really does vary. And despite some national barriers, there are some councils doing some really good things within those constraints and reducing emissions and kind of having a better climate impact within that area. And we touched on this last time, but um, from, from a local council perspective, I think you 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 talked about this earlier a little bit as well that that almost that accountability or that that ability to be able to compare a council with another council like that has 
galvanized action or that has um, speeded up action within the sort of local authority sector and has and has allowed I guess a lot more transparency um around what it is and in that case it was about what was what people were planning and and those sorts of things but they the plan scorecard was generally quite well received by local authorities yeah because um I think it's important to know, to kind of say that council started declaring climate emergencies back in 2019 primarily as a result of you know residents and campaigners wanting their councils to do that most councils now have a climate action plan but yeah are they any good mm. which is what our plan scorecards were asking and then our action scorecards were saying okay so what have you actually done like are you delivering climate action that we think is necessary yeah or are you you know have a nice plan actually none of these actions are unable to be implemented mm. um so it was well received and that's kind of where we're focusing our work on it kind of yeah what can you do as a council mm. because councils are confusing and hard to understand um trying to understand your own council is a mission in and of itself but then say you move or staff member moves and you go to a different council like powers vary across councils so our work like you said is really about kind of holding councils to account but providing that transparency and accessibility to this information both for residents and council staff and councillors you know there's no guarantee that all councillors are experts in transport on waste or on biodiversity and equally for a lot of councils seriously working on climate action is a relatively new area you mm. know for some departments so they don't necessarily have all that information and knowledge to hand um, and this is what our scorecards try and provide is some of that kind of overview of what is actually happening rather than just the theoretical like you could retrofit your yes. homes like we all know that cool but like how Maybe someone who's doing do it that? yeah yeah like what are the steps like retrofit costs a lot of money right so what can we do if we don't have the whole money to pay yeah. for retrofit what are the, like, the steps on the way that we can do as a council mm. so you had this team of over 200 volunteers and you sort of allocated every volunteer sort of a section or two sections depending on how much time they had available didn't you can you remember off the top of your head what the sections are oh people ask me this all the time and I'm pretty <laughs> sure I can it's only seven okay. so it is building and heat teaching transport planning and land use biodiversity governance and finance collaboration and engagement and waste reduction and food Fab. amazing and I did the um waste reduction and food and then you so everybody had their section, but then also got allocated a certain number of uh, local authorities to go and look at. And it was so interesting looking. I mean, who goes and really looks at their local authorities website anyway? But the yeah. difference in just really basic stuff like website design and how user friendly it was and how some of them you went there and you were like, oh, that's where I need to go. Click, click, click. And you could find the information you wanted. With others, you were like, oh where where do I go and where might I be able to look and then that thing of um looking for something that isn't there but assuming it is there and you're missing it is really disconcerting um so it was a really interesting experience to see how different local authorities you know manage their websites and what information is available how easily it is available um just just that in itself was was a real kind of like oh there are some that are doing this really well and just their website is very engaging and very user-friendly and there are some that are like oh this this doesn't feel quite so nice <laughs> yeah and I think it's really important to say that you know 
we recruited over 200 volunteers to do this marking but it wasn't really just for us like what you're kind of touching upon there is like as a volunteer you guys learn things as well mm. you learn like oh I didn't realize that actually maybe my council is doing better than some other councils or maybe oh my god like why is you know I don't know Bristol scored quite high Bristol's website is amazing and all the information is there and they're doing really well I didn't realize that a council could do all of these things yes why is it my council doing that um, and we have had stories of volunteers working with us um, and have then used experience either in their campaigning groups, but also getting jobs in councils or related organisations. Um, because, yeah, you're experts. You've looked at like 20 or 40 different councils on a particular subject. Like, you know your stuff. And and you just said earlier that, you know, councils are hard to understand. I didn't really understand how my local authority works and you did some great webinars for the volunteers that explained how local councils work and the different types of councils and there was a stat that has really stuck with me and it was about the demographics of local councillors can you remember what that is it's a few years ago but it's something like the average age of a councillor is Mm. 58 um, and the local government association count young councillors as under the age of 40 which yeah. I think for a lot of people who are in their 30s suddenly feel like, oh, I'm a young person. I'm, I'm a young counsellor. And that's kind of mad, isn't it? And the lack of, um, I guess, sort of demographic representation amongst our counsellors must have an impact in terms of the political decisions that that are then being made. Yeah, that's something we don't know. Um, but it's something you we, did pull a face you know, when I said that. <laughs> well, so we're having um, alongside the action scorecard results, we're also publishing a much more detailed um, analysis report in about six months time, which is going to look into a bit more detail about um, why councils have scored high, which ones and try and understand what the trends and what the reasons might be. And in discussions to try and understand, like, how should we look at that data? There was a suggestion around, yeah, demographic, demographics of council. So not just political control, the age range, the type of people that are in these councils. Because as much as like we do this work from a climate perspective, our work is also kind of democratic ed- education. Mm-hmm. At school, no one gets taught how your councils work or how UK government works. And parliament is totally separate from local councils. So even if we weren't doing climate stuff, like this is really important citizenship and citizen mm. information about these are bodies that you have democratically elected, like you have a right to know what they're doing and a right to influence them, whether that's for climate stuff or whether it's for health or other issues mm. that you care about. Um, we do see, you know, whilst we are focusing primarily on climate action, our work is useful and that support is useful to like the wider yeah, citizens engagement. Because with with councils, so you have your local um, county councillor or whoever that you that you will vote for, and and I think the turnout is pretty low, isn't it, in county council elections? But they're they're your voted your representative. But then the people on the ground doing the implementation, doing the work, they're all employees and paid, um, you know, in paid roles, and, and so you will have somebody with hopefully with climate expertise who's the climate lead and all those sorts of things. But they're given the yes or no on those decisions by those elected councillors who may or may not have particular knowledge or um, political persuasions or whatever that, that influence their decisions. Yeah, there's loads of 
difficulties that local government face, like one being the fact that budgets have been slashed year on year since 2010. So they're being asked to provide the same number of services, but with less money year on year. And that impacts into all areas of work that they're doing. We're seeing councils going bankrupt now, aren't we? We're seeing local authorities going bankrupt. Yeah, Birmingham City. Um, So yeah, that is hard for councils. Um, It's hard to understand how your local council works. Even councillors themselves sometimes don't understand what powers they have, because in some places there's four tiers of local government. So all the powers are split. You've got combined authorities, county council, district, uh, then kind of town and parish. Um, So it could be really, and you've got devolved assemblies. So it's really quite varied. Um, So I think there's very few people in the UK that are experts on local government structures and powers. So that's kind of another reason why we're here is, you know, trying to provide some of that information in an accessible way on how councils work, the powers they have, and therefore, what can your local council, whether you're a staff member, council or resident, what can they be doing um, to reduce carbon emissions within your area? Mm. So the nitty gritty of the results then I guess in terms of the actions did good plans relate correlate very strongly with good actions or not at all broadly broadly speaking um so in general the councils that scored lowest in the action scorecards this year most of them didn't have a climate action plan when we looked back in um yeah up till September 2021 okay but in general, the scores in the plan scorecards were a lot higher than the action scorecard score. So um, this time around, the average score was around 30% for all council types and only 41 councils scored over 50% in our action scorecards. And how does that compare to the plans? Yeah, <laughs> a, lot, a, lot, a lot lower. Okay. So the average score was kind of much closer to 40% or so. Okay. Um, and councils were scoring, you know, like 80% or mm. 75% as their overall score. Well, as this time around, you know, the highest score was like 64, 65%. Right. So everything's a lot lower. And I think in many ways that's not a surprise because we're measuring actual action this time. So you can't have a shiny document and a well-presented piece of information yeah. and like lots of really good commitments. Mm. This time around we were asking, okay, so have you provided carbon literacy to your um staff and counselors um do you have a service to support private homeowners to like retrofit their homes um does your local in plan include kind of really important climate commitments in terms of building new homes you know not commitments but actual action this time so how did you decide on what was the like gold standard what was the hundred percent like how did you decide on what actions you think councils should be taking yeah, so this is a really good question. It took us a long time to come up with the yeah, yeah. action scorecard questions. Um, so we did it over a period of nine months um, with consultation with over 80 people from across the sector. And that really varied. So sometimes you spoke to like specific councillors, council staff. Sometimes it was kind of wider campaigning organisations like Friends of the Earth, or sector ones like Ashton. Sometimes it was people who worked on really specific issues like pesticide action network we spoke to them about our pesticide question or um there's a organization called como who look at um kind of bike lanes and electrical vehicle charging points kind of active travel infrastructure so we spoke to them for those questions Mm. 
So we did a series of consultations across the sector. We also did a trial mark with some volunteers as well to see whether the questions worked or whether we were kind of making things up. Mm. Um, And then we published the methodology back in November 2022. Um, And the reason partly we published it ahead of marking was so that councils could see what we were marking against. So that would be fair. But also, just in case we got something wrong, like we thought councils had power over something and they didn't, um, we could provide those tweaks. But yeah, we used as much information as we could based on kind of other best practice Mm. in terms of what councils can be doing on climate action. But maybe it's worth saying that this is all all the more confusing because local authorities in the UK, bar Scotland and to some extent in Wales, don't have a statutory duty to report or act on climate. So everything that councils are doing in some ways is above and beyond their statutory Mm. duty. Um, So yes, they sometimes have requirements around kind of retrofitting homes or limited stuff on air quality. But in terms of thinking of, you know, climate emergency declaration, climate action overall, um, there isn't, you know, a formula or guidance from national government that says this is what councils should be doing for climate action. So that's kind of what we've been trying to do. And we've been talking to as many people as possible to understand what it is that councils yeah. can do and provide this guidance. Um, so you've now almost created that gold standard, that 100 percent, like, you know, almost a, a tick box, you know, that. This is yeah. what we should be aiming for um, by creating the by formulating those questions almost. Yeah. And what we do know is that for every question that we ask, we know of at least one council that has done that. Oh, wow. So, so it's not... not just a like, oh, wouldn't it be great if and everyone go, yeah, well, that's never going to happen yeah. because X, Y and Z, like somebody has made this happen somewhere. Yeah. No council has done everything. Yeah. Uh, although Greater Manchester Combined Authority do score 100% in the buildings and heating section, and they're the only council to score 100% at all. Um, but we all know that all of these actions are possible. Like The easy one to talk about is the workplace parking levy, which often people talk about. It's about charging um, people who have businesses, um, making the car parks where they work uh, payable, that residents or, residents or people who are commuting into work pay for those parking spaces, that revenue is then used for the council to do other things with. Nottingham City Council is the only one that has a workplace parking levy, but it creates millions of pounds each wow. year, which they're able to invest into their public transport. And I don't know if you've been to Nottingham, but they've got quite a good public tram system. Mm. And like in general, for outside London, their public transport is not that bad. Yeah. And I, that's that's one of the things I was thinking when, when you were saying, I was like, oh, so you've got this lovely gold standard. Like, and I don't know, but has anyone done the work to cost? Like, is this financially viable for a council to to reach 100%? Can any council do that? That is a really good question. Um, understanding council budgets is hard. Yeah. Um, so I think it would <laughs> Especially be Especially when they're all going bankrupt left, right and centre. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but what I would say is that some of the actions, yes, do cost money, but a lot of them don't. Um, I think kind of bring it back to retrofit. Yeah, if councils could pay to retrofit all of their social houses, that would be great. But we know that most councils don't have the funds to do that. So that's why our questions haven't asked for that. What we've asked is like, do you have a target to retrofit your homes and has it been costed? Because they're the first things you would need to do Mm. in order to get external funding to do that retrofit. Yeah. So if a council were to score 100% in our scorecards, 
I don't think we can say then there'd be a net zero. Yeah. But they would be making really good progress um, within the powers that they have to get, you know, as near to it as they can. Yeah. Um, and so do you envisage that in two years time you would sort of repeat this exercise with a series of progressively tougher questions? So, you know, do you have a plan for retrofitting and have you funded it? Have you got the funding to do it? And, you know, so that each time you're pushing them that little bit further. Yeah, so we definitely have plans to publish again because we want to be able to track that progress as things change over time. The vast majority of the questions will stay the same. Otherwise, we're kind of like making it impossible. Mm, Yes, yeah, constantly changing Um, the goalpost. But of course, there will be incremental changes where things become possible or available. Mm. So um, sorry to bring up the same examples again, but on food waste, um, it's soon going to be a legal requirement for councils to provide curbside food waste recycling. Mm. So therefore, we'll no longer include that question because we kind of take it as default that they're doing it. We might include a question that goes, okay, you know, how, what percentage of the food is um, being collected? You know, what are the food waste statistics rather than are you providing the service? Mm. Yeah, a lot of our questions have kind of like three tier criteria. Um, So there's a question on like average EPC ratings, the Environmental Performance Certificate of Homes. And there's, you know, one point, I think, if 50% of your homes are above EPCC, and there's another point if it's 60, and then another point if it's 90. So So is this homes within a, um, like, council-owned homes, or is this just all of the homes within a... So we have two questions. We have one on council-owned homes, um, on the EPC ratings. Then we also have a question on... Yeah, the area-wide, um, mm. all of those homes are their private rented or kind of privately owned. What are those ratings? So councils could definitely be like improving. You know, maybe mm. they got one mark this time around for their council-only homes. But hopefully over years, more and more will be up to a decent environmental performance standard. Yeah. And they'll be reaching those full marks. How did you, when you, you know, you obviously saw the results come in in dribs and drabs. And, you know, because I was sort of, very aware because I was on you know having volunteered on it and on the of when the launch date was and things like that and then I went and looked and I was like oh well then none of them are doing very well (laughs) and it was kind of you know I was kind of I guess expecting that but did you feel like how did you feel when you saw it all and you saw you know a, a quantifiable number I guess for how well or otherwise councils are doing yeah so I think in many ways what our you know quantifiable numbers numbers show is what everyone kind of already knows within the sector like UK-wide emissions you know aren't great like we know we're in a climate ecological Mm -hmm. emergency and action isn't happening fast enough so I think if the scores had come out that all councils were getting like 80 90 percent yeah and we're still in this much trouble you'd be like oh (laughs) Either our questions are really wrong or like something weird is happening somewhere in the UK. Yeah. Um, And actually, I think despite the overall scores being low, I think it's important to say that there are 36 councils that scored over 80% in one or more sections. Right. Um, And like that is cause for hope. And it is varied. You know, it's not the same councils all just scoring well. It is varied across the UK. And I think what that does show is like, despite the challenges, um, you know, which are national in terms of legislation and funding in some ways, there are things that councils can do within Mm. that power, within their power. Um, And we really want to see councils, you know, maxing out that and doing absolutely everything they can 
with the funds and resources and the capacity they have. Um, because whilst our work is supporting at a local level, we are looking to and hope that, you know, by providing this like complete national picture, we and others can use this to push for further resources from a national level yes. to councils to show them that actually, look, councils do have the ability to do this, you know, whether it's retrofit, whether it's waste reduction, mm. if given, you know, the time and energy to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and some of the stuff like, because I did the waste section, the waste and food, and some of it wasn't particularly big asks. So some of it was, um, there was stuff around single use plastic and, you know, is there any policy around single use plastic at council events? And very few that I marked had that. That doesn't feel like that's a particularly hard thing to implement. That just needs somebody to have a look at what someone else is doing and, you know, copy their policy. And um, and that would, and it wouldn't cost them anything. And it's a really good, not only does it reduce the waste associated with council events, but it it is one of those ripple impacts. It's one of those, we, we require everybody to be doing this. So everyone goes, Oh crap! We've got to do that if we want to go to a council event. So it it has a much wider impact, and so, uh, yeah, I suspect there's probably quite a few areas where they some of the stuff will be really big, like retrofitting and implementing food curbside food waste recycling, and and have a cost. But there was some other stuff that I was like, that that's not that hard. You could do that. Come yeah, on, and I on, think guys. for a lot of our questions, you know, if you look at them in isolation, you're like, oh yeah, that's achievable. A council could do that. But yeah, the climate crisis is huge. And so there is a lot that we all need to be doing. Mm. You know, when it's combined together, it can seem like quite a lot. Um, but just to pick up on the kind of single-use plastic policy, um, yeah, there was a few questions there. One was about whether councils have like banned it um, mm, mm. within their premises. Scottish councils automatically got full points because in the devolved nation, they've set their ban on single-use plastics at a higher level and have banned more in Scotland than they have in the rest of the UK currently. And then the question was about whether councils require external event organisers to like consider or kind mm. of ban the use of single-use plastic. And like you said, it is possible. Brighton and Hove, which is where I live, um, do request that information from external event organisers to know, you know, what are they um, mm. considering in terms of plastic? So these things are possible. And that's really what we're hoping these scorecards show is that councils can go and look at councils that did or didn't score points in certain yes. sections, look at the evidence, which is available this time, and learn from each other. Be like, oh, okay, that's Brighton Hove's external event policy that includes single-use plastic. Oh, amazing. So, so we they can go, amend that. So so yeah. a local authority could go, oh, yeah, maybe we ought to pull our socks up on single-use plastic. Who scored best on that? Oh, it was Brighton and Hove and go and see. And, and like you said about, um, I think, Greater Manchester doing really well on buildings, like to get that, oh, this is this is how they've done that. This is what they've done and how they've done. And so we can start to try and and sort of replicate that. And I think that's one of the the brilliant things about it, isn't it? It's not really a tool to bash councils over the head with. It's a tool to help councils to see that better is possible and to help them to work together to help more of them do that. Yeah, definitely. Like I wouldn't expect any council staff member or councillor to have a good oversight of what all other 388 councils mm. are doing in the UK on transport, on planning, on biodiversity. Yeah. But with this data set, councils can start to do that. Um, and just on the food and waste section, um, one of like my favourite questions in there is about whether the council ensure that for the schools they manage the catering for, 
or have a contract with, there's at least one vegetarian meal a week. Um, and from what we found, about half of UK councils do provide that in the schools where they have the power. So if you're in a council where, you know, that isn't happening, you think, oh, it's just not possible. It is. You might not know the names of the councils. Um, but yeah. one, it was, was it one vegetarian day a week or because you said vegetarian yeah. meal? One, so one vegetarian one day. vegetarian day. Yeah. And so that's happening in about half of councils. Yeah, from yeah. our data. Because that's something I think that certainly on an individual school level, schools can be a little bit where like, oh, gosh, we couldn't do that because we'll get a big backlash about, you know, how dare you take away our child's spaghetti bolognese or burgers or whatever it is. Whereas if you're like, actually, 50 percent of councils have done this and it's fine. And this this is the barriers they had to overcome. And this is how they did that. And come on, you can do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is you know as much an example of showing what councils aren't doing. It's also showing what councils are doing yeah. and therefore how they with residents and other communities can learn from each other to start implementing some of those changes. And did you get any sense that, because you said that, I can't remember what the number was, but, you know, a significant number of councils had scored quite highly in like one category. Mm -hmm. Did you get any sense that councils are almost going like, okay, this year our focus is going to be on waste and next year we're going to look at retrofitting? And because it is so big and there's so much to do and and that's what I do like in my membership clubhouse we have a little a little theme each you know every and and so I wonder if that is one way of tackling it or do you think councils are just like oh we need to do something for everything all at once I think that would be a good analysis um I don't know if we can say that's how councils are working yes I think yeah I think a lot of it is funding dependent mm. um and skills and expertise so say your climate staff team have a background in retrofit or in planning, then of course they're likely to be focusing their, you know, their work there rather than looking at waste reduction. Mm. And also it depends where you are in the UK. So if you're a rural council, you know, improving bus, ser bus yeah. services might be like a bigger task because there's fewer bus services and people live further and further away. So you might want to focus on something maybe planning because there's going to be lots of mm. you know homes built in a more rural place um than perhaps a different place where you don't know you've got lots of lots of homes it's more of an urban setting and you want to be looking at waste reduction or you want to be looking at um the energy efficiency of those homes and did you give any weighting to the different weighting to the questions sort of trying to think well actually where are the big levers or where is the big um, impact coming from from local authorities is it planning is it transport is it and therefore we're going to wait you know to, uh, just to make some numbers up typically let's just say typically 20 percent of emissions from a local authority come from transport so we will give the transport questions 20 percent weighting did you kind of do it like that yeah so we've got two weightings one we've got is the section weightings um and thanks for talking about transport because buildings and heatings and transport are the like highest weighting sections and in terms because, of emissions yeah because they're the biggest emitters mm. so we want you know councils you know we want more of their points to matter in those sections focus on waste, where the impact is yeah. yeah and waste reduction food whilst it is important councils have less direct impact it's a bit more of a kind of influencing role yes. um so that section was scored lower we had then also done question weighting for individual questions so any action which is about the council only operations, so about, you know, does the council use renewable energy within, within its area? Has the council banned single-use plastic within its building? They've been a low weighted because whilst they're important, they're not having that kind of ripple effect across mm. the whole area. 
but you know higher weighted questions such as vegetarian meals in schools or planning policy um, can have a huge impact on kind of the new homes that are built for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Mm. So where the actions um, councils have more of a direct control over and the action is area wide, they've been high weighted. So it's low, medium and high for each questions and then various weighting of each sections. All of it is available to see on our website because, yeah, there's a lot of sections and a lot of numbers. So I would encourage mm. people to look at our website if they want to know more. Now, this is probably a really mean question, but for each of those seven sections, can you give us an example of something that is being done? And you, whether you remember who the council is or not, but like, you know, because I just sort of sat here thinking, well, I don't really know what I can expect my council to be doing. So, you know, if you're like, well, this is a really great example of, buildings or this is a really great example of transport or this is that would be lovely to 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 hear I guess mm. so yeah there's so much to choose from it's kind of hard to know where to start but in terms of planning there are some councils that have really got got some really good local plans and when I say really good it means they've really considered um, the carbon emissions of new build homes so they're making sure where possible new homes are being built to kind of net zero standards they're not building on floodplains. They're considering the water usage of new homes um, and things like that. So Leeds and Cornwall are councils that do particularly high there. A lot of London councils do particularly well in the transport section. Mm. Um, and that's because <laughs> they have something massive. called, yeah. well, they have TFL, you know, mm. they have an integrated bus and train system. Um, they have public transport that connects you, you know, buses at every bus stop really like regular trains even night bus service Uh, it's not the cheapest but it's definitely more affordable than other places in the UK Mm. um you know they have 20 mile an hour zones across a lot of the UK they have um you have to pay for parking in a lot of places in London which discourages the use of cars for short trips so you know yes it's London but there are other cities but then you also mentioned Nottingham who who have got that really good public transport infrastructure yeah so there's definitely things that can be learned um from yeah from London in terms of transport um Barnet Council definitely provide uh as far as we're aware one vegetarian meal a week two um one vegetarian day meals yeah one kind of complete day each week um so there's stuff that you learn there. I mean, Wales is a good one to look at for that section just because their recycling rate is so much higher than the rest oh, really? of the UK. And then like, some of those councils are really rural, um, which makes waste collection harder, but they're still managing to hit kind of 70 plus recycling rate, 70% plus. Wow. So that's where to look at. Um, collaboration and engagement, I would say often the councils, um, not always, but kind of with some money to do some of that consultation with residents. Um, do well, I think Birmingham schools particularly high, which I think is impressive because they're the biggest local authority in Europe. Wow. So to kind of collaborate and engage across a huge city like that is quite an achievement. I'm not are there, are there any, because I wanted to sections. ask you specifically about that, that section, um, because I think that can be really interesting, isn't it? How, because the council can be doing great stuff on their own premises and all that sort of thing. Um, but their their influence and how they engage their community around this um, is, is really key to it. And I have you got any 
specific and I'm really aware I'm putting you on the spot but any specific examples of a great engagement campaign or something whether it was around food waste or whether it was around public transport or you know what sorts of good things have you seen councils do to engage residents yeah so it does vary um but some of the things we want them to do is like not just be engaging with residents so are they working with businesses mm. to encourage decarbonization are they working with schools um, yeah. And are they working with cultural institutions? I think that's kind of kind of an interesting angle, whether it's museums or sports clubs. Yeah. Um, to look at what can happen there. Um, yeah, yeah the working with health services is the one I wanted to bring up because obviously uh, pollution has an impact on mm. people's health. So does um, home insulation. So does access to green space. So councils are often trusted members of the community. And whilst they can't you know, directly affect everything in their community, like you said, what they can do is work in partnership and support other actors within the community who probably also are working hard towards net zero to work with them um, to do what they can and share that knowledge um, to get closer to net zero. And I think for the collaboration engagement section, it's a really important one for us as citizens um, or residents of your council, because we ask whether the council do you have a climate action plan? Mm. Do you have an update on how you're doing? Is it easy to find on your website? Like, councils, democratic institutions, residents should be knowing about what they're doing on climate because mm. we do know that the vast majority of residents are concerned about climate change. So we're wanting to see evidence of some action from councils. And that was sort of leads on to the, to the next question in terms of um, we've talked about how the councils might use this resource to look for other councils that are doing really good stuff and to to you know see where they are in the league table and all that sort of thing but as as residents i'm very aware that a temptation might be to look at it and then write them a really uh, air quote strongly worded email about how rubbish they are and like and and i assume that's probably not the intention how do you want us to use it as residents and and citizens yeah, so there's lots of ways you can kind of use this data to work with your council to improve their climate action. Um, we've created a little guide for it. So we'd really encourage you guys to read it. It's on our website. And we've also got upcoming trainings on the 15th of November and the 7th of December oh, on how to use the action scorecards. Yeah. Um, hopefully we'll share these links yeah, um, yeah. afterwards. So yeah, we'll kind of dive in a bit more detail about what the scorecards show um, and how you can use it. And I think... A useful thing to start with is like there's a lot of information here um, and we don't provide that local nuance. So what are the biggest issues in your local area? If the council is currently writing its local plan, then maybe that's now the time to influence because once they're set, they're set for like 10 to 15 years. Mm. Or is, you know, there's plans to, you know, look at active travel infrastructure. We'll focus on the transport section. Or do you know that some of the councillors really care about biodiversity and maybe that's the avenue you want to start? So I think as residents, it's really important to think about what are the biggest issues in your local area, but also what is winnable and what do you care about? Um, and don't start on all 91 questions. Pick an area that you want to focus on and build from that. Um, we've also produced a kind of 15 things your council can do to improve their climate action. Oh, uh, it's only like four pages um, and those actions are primarily low cost or low mm -hmm. capacity. So we're not asking them to kind of, yeah, 
suddenly find millions in pounds of, of funding yeah yeah they're things that you know most councils would be able to do um with some of that political will and community support so i would yeah start those 15 points perhaps see if your council has done all of those things or not and maybe they've done like five so now mm-hmm. you've only got 10 things that the council could work on and maybe you most care about yeah buildings and heating or particular section and focus um on that area and of course work with others um across the community there might be other climate action groups happening locally you might want to set one up yourself yeah talk to the councils as much as we think we're pretty sure most councils know about our work there's a lot in the uk so Mm. anything you can do to engage your council really helps and your voice matters more than us because you're the ones who can vote for these councillors i can't vote for councils outside of brighton so it's important that you use your voice as a resident to talk to the councils where possible and is our voice best used with our local councillor or with the local authorities climate officer or both or who do we direct our yeah um... I mean it really varies um it's worth thinking about you know who is the relevant council lead okay um so so, so every ca- every council should have an one of the elected councillors as a sort of lead on climate issues yeah, on climate. and then they'll Although, have their paid climate role yeah 64 councillors in the UK don't so that would be an easy way to start and be like who don't is have your... a, a councillor responsible yeah, for climate. your okay. cabinet or committee chair lead which has climate change within their remit um so that would be a good place to start um you might want to talk to your local councillor because they will represent you directly within you know the mm. mini area or ward where you live um, but it really varies because in some councils, the councillors really care about climate action, but structural barriers or kind of staff right. issues mean they can't get the work done. In other councils, the staff might be really committed, you know, campaigners and yeah. want to do everything they can. But the councillors are focused on a different issue or haven't mm. kind of realised that it matters. So it's important to get to know your council and understand where are those barriers um, and talk to the relevant people to kind of influence in the ways that work best in your area yeah and can you because what I sort of don't really want to do is email my council and say um because Wiltshire like had scored really well on the plans and then I had a look and they're not there they they were I think maybe top five on the plan and now they're like 20th or something on the on the actions um but I don't know how helpful it is for me to go, have you guys seen this? That's a bit rubbish, isn't it? Like, um, what is there anything I can do to to help them or to support them other yeah. than point out the fact that they've just so <laughs> dropped quite a really bit It's really important table. to communicate with your council. Like you touched upon it earlier, turnout in local elections is often around 30%. Mm. So like over two thirds of residents haven't voted them in. And then if you think of the number of people who like engage with their council, you know, to praise them or criticise them is low. Mm. And most of the time, people only get in contact with the council who've got something to moan about, whether there's a pothole or their bins weren't collected. And it's really important that we don't just talk to our council about those negative things. Yes, Wiltshire might not have scored so well in the scorecards, but if you can approach them and say, you know, you haven't scored so well, but here are some ways you can improve check out the resources on mm. Climate Emergency UK's website or like, have you seen this council next door have done this? Mm. What have you thought about that? And because turnout is low in local elections, 
if five people email the same counsellor yes. about an issue, to them that looks like that's a real issue because often uh, no one is talking to them about anything unless it's potholes and bin collections. <laughs> Um, so do use your voice. Um, counselors are busy people. Uh, you know, it's never a full time job. Uh, but there are things you can do to work with councils. Um, and I think it would be interesting to look at more about whether, you know, the correlation between where there are active climate action groups, and whether that mm. has led to kind of uh, stronger climate commitment from councils. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know that in Ed Wiltshire, there is a quite a strong um I think Wiltshire Climate Alliance and and they do, you know, they are watching what the what the council are doing and and yeah. putting pressure on. So as you say, it's interesting, isn't it? Um now you've got a crowdfunder running at the moment. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, we do. So we're a small organization. Uh we get our money primarily through grants um and individual donations. Uh but yeah, it's a struggle each year to keep going. Um, and we kind of touched upon it before that this work is only useful if we keep doing it. Mm. Otherwise, in a few years time, these scorecards will become obsolete. So currently we've got a match funded crowd funder um, that's launched up until the 22nd of November, which means every donation up to £250 is doubled um, through Aviva. So if you give us a tenner, we get 20 quid. So definitely, I know times are tough, but it's worth donating now rather than in December, because we get double the amount. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and if you can't donate, please do pass a message on to friends and family. Uh, as a small organisation, we only have a certain reach, um, and you might know other people in the area that might be uh, better able to donate. And you're literally using that money to, you know, pay pay for the internet and, um, you know, people's wages and and keep the whole project afloat. Yeah, so we're kind of fundraising for two things. One is to maximise the use of the scorecards. So that's about us being able to come out and visit community groups, run sessions online in terms of how to use the scorecards and, yeah, how can we help you in your local areas? And then we'll be using the funds to start this whole process again uh, later next year to to make this data useful and valuable, you know, as we keep working towards net zero. Yeah, I was just about to say to you, so, so what's next? And then you've just gone, yeah, next year we start all over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not quite yet. We're going to take, you know, not a break, but there's a lot to be done to kind of, yeah. We still, yeah, it's worth saying we've got over 160 media hits with the launch um, in under a week, but there's still lots more work to do to make sure people know about the scorecards mm. and the next steps of supporting them to use that, whether that's counsellors, council staff, um, or other organizations yeah amazing um I, I mean my mind boggles just at the sheer volume of data that that the the volunteer team collected and I'm so glad that you know I, I wasn't involved in having to sift through the data I just had to go and go and find it and um but I mean it is amazing that there is an organization like you guys doing this and and the um the, the sort of punchy pack for such a small organization I think is is enormous so um yeah, a massive thank, thank you. you to you guys for doing all of this yeah thank you it's something like over 36,000 data points that we've created mm. and that is I think only two-thirds like it's a it's a lot yeah it's a lot and as you said you're, you're like a, a really small team and so to be having this enormous impact on in an area that 
you know let's be honest isn't that sexy or exciting and yeah <laughs> um like it's it's amazing that somebody's had the foresight to to go and to decide that this is a really important area because it is and to to utilize a relatively small team to have such a big impact I think it's brilliant yeah thank you that's yeah really nice to hear partly because I'm sure I said it in the last podcast it was me who approached climate emergency UK almost yeah two and a half years ago being like think we should measure council on their climate action I've got a bit of an idea of how to do it Mm. and like on a personal level it is really exciting to be like oh yeah this idea other people think it's useful yeah we've done it (laughs) and and I love those examples of like one person having an idea and and making something happen and now look at the the impact that it's had I, I don't I don't I mean wouldn't it be amazing if I don't know if there is a way of quantifying the the impact that having the scorecards has done in terms of additional actions and pledges that councils have done but it must be you know huge yeah and that's what we're starting to look at like already from the plan scorecards I don't know if you saw it but we were seeing our plan scorecards referenced in council's climate action plan updates so they're like we only scored 40 percent we need to improve in these areas. Amazing. And then this time around, um, now the action scorecard results are out. We're already getting statements and press releases from councils saying things like, this scorecards are a really useful assessment tool. Whilst we've done really well in this section, we know this is where we need to improve. Yeah, you've done a massive body of work for them, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. Free consultancy <laughs> yeah. is another way to look at it, but it's not yeah. quite. <laughs> Um, amazing. So um, remind us all of the website, Annie, for people to come and so have So you a go to councilclimatescorecards.uk. You will have, yeah, all the data is available, links to the crowdfunder, links to how to use the scorecards in your campaigning um, and the how to use the scorecard session links as well. I was going to say, if people want to sign up for those sessions, that's all linked to yeah. on the website. Council Climate Scorecards is the place to go for all of it. Amazing. Oh, fabulous. Thank you so much, um, Annie, for coming and giving us that update. It's it's like I said, it's one of those areas that if you'd said, oh, come and listen to a podcast for an hour about local council action, you'd be like, really? But it is actually super interesting when you start to dive into it and start to to understand the potential positive impacts that can be had and and, and how this work is doing that. So, um, yeah. yeah, thank you to you and the team for all the work you're well, doing. Thanks for having brilliant. us. Yeah we do try and make this information a little bit more accessible so that people can understand that it it is important it is interesting once you understand it all yeah yeah amazing well um good luck with the crowdfunder and i will share all those links and um and i'm sure maybe we'll catch up in 18 months time when the next one <laughs> yeah when the next one comes out give me a little break but there will yeah. be another one There we go. Who knew councils could be so interesting? I don't know about you, but I thought this episode was fascinating. Let's face it, local authorities are never going to be the sexy and exciting end of climate action, but they really do have a huge scope for really positive impact, not just in terms of emissions reductions, but also in terms of engagement from local communities. So what did you think? I really hope that either during listening or right this minute now, you're toddling off to the Council Climate Scorecards website to have a little look at your local authority and how they scored. And while you're there, do check out those brilliant resources that Annie mentioned during the chat, but I will just flag them again. There's a fabulous document with 15 ways to improve your council's climate action that you could absolutely flag to your local authority via an email. There's also a campaigner's guide to using the scorecards and, well, 
some of us might not think of ourselves as campaigners, we can still certainly use those resources to help us to understand the scorecards and how we might be able to use them to gently encourage, shall we say, our local authorities to take more ambitious climate action. And then there's also those training sessions that Annie mentioned that are happening online in November and December. So I have linked to all of those resources in the show notes, which you can find as usual at www.asustainablelife.co.uk forward slash podcast. And please do check out that crowdfunder campaign where your donation will be matched by Aviva until the 22nd of November. And again, there is a link to that in the show notes. And now, without further ado, here is this week's good news. First up, news that Uruguay's national grid is run on 98% green energy. According to the story on the NPR website, in 2007, Uruguay had a massive problem. They had an economy of three and a half million people that was growing, but there just wasn't enough energy to power all of the growth. There was energy rationing, people's bills were going up. But since that point, they have hugely increased their capacity for wind turbines and their energy grid is now powered almost exclusively by domestically created renewable energy and when adjusted for inflation, consumer prices have actually gone down. Closer to home in Gateshead in the UK, a disused coal mine has been providing the town with green energy for the last six months. I have to confess, I don't really understand this one and how it works. (laughs) But according to the story in Euronews.green, following decades of disuse, Britain's coal mines have gradually flooded. This water has been warmed by the earth and there are an estimated 2 billion cubic metres of warm water that could be one answer to some of our renewable energy needs. Gareth Farr is quoted in the article. He is the head of heat and byproduct innovation at the Coal Authority, which owns and manages the disused coal mining infrastructure on behalf of the UK government. And he says, recovering heat from mine water below the ground within abandoned coal mines provides an exciting opportunity to generate a low carbon secure supply of heat, benefiting people living or working in buildings on the coal fields. As I said, don't really understand it, but it does sound pretty exciting. And maybe I ought to get someone on the podcast to come and talk about it. And finally, much closer to home, I have literally just sent out 24 shiny new carbon literacy certificates to start two successful, I can't even say it, they were that successful, successful participants of September's carbon literacy courses. So I ran one open course for anyone and everyone to join, one for the brilliant team at Everyday Plastic, and I'm really hoping that I will be able to get Daniel to come on the podcast soon to talk more about what they do, and one carbon literacy course for the veterinary profession, which I run with an amazing organisation called Vet Sustain. Now, in order to get their certificates, participants have to make two carbon reduction pledges. And there were some fabulous ones. Here are just a few examples. First up, I will commit to changing my investments and pensions to sustainable choices. If you want to hear more about that, there's a recent episode with um, Dan at uh, My Mother Tree. So go and check that one out. Uh, Someone else said, I'm going to design a carbon literacy training session to provide for my team. And I will also put together a sustainability group with members from each department. That sounds super exciting. And the last example, I'm going to commit to buying nothing new as an individual for the next three months. As someone with a bit of an Amazon habit, this will be a challenge. I love that one, especially as we've got Christmas coming up as well. 
All of the pledges are great individually, but you really start to see the power of collective action when you add them up. So when I send out certificates, I attach an infographic showing a conservative estimate for the emission savings of their particular cohort's pledges. And the total across all three groups for September came in at a whopping 23,430 kilos of carbon dioxide equivalent, which is the equivalent of 6.7 return flights from London to Hong Kong. A huge thank you to all of the September learners for stepping up for the planet and coming on the course. And if you're interested in finding out more about carbon literacy or want to see when the next courses are, I've popped a link in the show notes. Of course I have. That is it from me for another week. Thank you so much for listening. It really is appreciated. Remember my mission from last week to double listeners? Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm a little bit distressed. So please do share the podcast with anyone who you think might like it. Please do leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. I know you must be bored of hearing me say this, but it really does make a difference. I would love to hear your thoughts on this week's podcast. And really importantly, if it's inspired you to go away and to do anything, do let me know. Have a great week and I will catch you next time. Take care. (laughs) 